<laughs> the new mom was frazzled as she played a clip similar to this for me in the emergency department. She never sleeps, she said. We're at our wit's end. I'm so tired. Maybe there's something wrong with her, doctor. Welcome back to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. I'm your host, Dr. Edward Less. Today we're going to talk about sleep. Sleep is as natural to the human condition as breathing, of course, and really just as critical. Without sleep, we wouldn't survive. But despite all of that, sleep doesn't always come naturally, particularly as we get older. But one would think it should come naturally when we're young, and it does, of course, but dealing with the seemingly random and choppy sleeping patterns of newborns can drive parents to distraction. Not to mention the ups and downs of raising small children who won't sleep when you want them to, the challenges of nightmares and night terrors, and all the rest. And if our kids don't sleep well, then neither do we. As if parenting isn't tough enough already, exhaustion triggered by lack of sleep chips away at our health, shortens our fuses, and can harm our relationships with our spouses. And so it's a big issue for parents. And joining me today to talk about that is Kaida Stevens. Kaida is a pediatric emergency nurse at Alberta Children's Hospital. She's a wondrously talented nurse who I've had the privilege of working alongside for 15 years. But germane to our discussion today, she's also a parent of two kids, aged three and six, and she's leveraged her experience as a mom and pediatric nurse to share her expertise in kids' sleep issues with parents. She runs a sleep coaching business for parents called Restful Night's Sleep. You can check it out. The link is in the show notes. I'll be right back with my interview with Kaida. Welcome, Kaida. Thanks for having me. So uh, just some brief background, if you don't mind. Uh, this uh, sleep company that you run, it's called uh, Restful Nights, is that right? Restful Nights Sleep. And for how long have you been doing that? I've been a pediatric sleep consultant for the past six years and still love guiding and helping all families get the sleep they need. I think it's fair to say that you have uh, street cred as far as uh, the topic we're going to discuss today, the, the sleep issue. Now, sleep, of course, as we all know, is a natural part of the human condition. We can't survive without it. I was just looking up this morning to see, to try to answer the question for myself, how long can a human being survive without sleep? And I discovered that the record for uh, sleep deprivation and surviving is 11 days. Hmm. But, but most people can't make it out to 11 days. And I think, in fact, uh, people used to use uh, sleep deprivation in times of war as a form of torture. No kidding. So um, all of that is preamble, I suppose, to the reality that uh, when parents are dealing with sleep problems with their kids, they themselves suffer with sleep deprivation because their kids aren't sleeping. And it can be really stressful uh, for parents, particularly parents of new babies when they come home and suddenly they have this human being in their house who's crying and crying and crying and won't sleep and and parents aren't sleeping and it's very stressful so what are in your business what are the most common types of issues that parents complain about with respect to for example their newborns uh, sleeping habits uh, honestly with newborns their biggest issue is getting them to like fall asleep and stay asleep in their bassinet or crib without using a sleep prop right um but that's normal isn't it i mean 
how, how much of your time is spent with parents reassuring him that crying and being awake actually is normal for newborns? I think that a lot of parents already know what they need to do in order to get their kids sleeping better, but it's kind of having that reassurance and somebody kind of holding their hand almost and helping them through the process and letting them know like it's normal for a kid to sleep if you're taking away what their sleep prop or like you hanging on to them. That's a normal activity yeah. for the child because they're upset that they're taking away that comfort for them, but it's right. it's just kind of guiding the family and being with them and supporting them and just backing them up and letting them know that what they're doing is right. Uh-huh. They just need a little bit more support. So on average, like for a typical newborn, how much sleep is normal? How normal is it then to be awake in terms of number of hours? Is there a lot of variation? Like what, what sort of guidelines do you give to new parents? Um, for newborns to three months, they usually sleep between uh, 18 to 20 hours in that 24 hour period. And it's usually between four to six naps a day. And they're roughly awake for about 45 um, minutes between each nap. So the newborns to three months, they're sleeping a lot. Right. So the perception though that parents have that my baby never sleeps it's not because they're actually not sleeping a lot. <laughs> it's because they're sleeping in short spurts. Yeah. Interrupted by feeding, wakefulness, and that sort of thing. And then, I guess, not sleeping, you know, at times that are convenient for parents to get rest. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we we see, you know, in, our, in the emergency department, you see them as well as I do. You know, parents who are very stressed and very tired in those early, in the early going, in the early days and weeks and months um, because their kids aren't sleeping and particularly when you throw in this thing called what we call colic you know there's this uh, maybe you've heard me say this to parents before this uh, this rule of threes around colic which means um, babies that cry for more than three hours a day continuously for more than three days a week starts at three weeks of age and usually resolves by three months of age and then I usually throw into parents and their moms and dads are three times more likely to jump off the nearest bridge. <laughs> it's true. Because they're so tired and so stressed out. Yeah. So what strategies do you have around that? You know, for these, you know, the kids are not sleeping and the parents are really tired because really tired and really stressed out parents is not a happy outcome for, uh, for a family, particularly for a new family. What no. sort of strategies do you advise for those sorts of situations? For those really difficult ones, you're really you're just going to be there to support the family so let the parents know like walking around in a carrier with the child and holding them is okay whatever kind of comfort positions and stuff you can with them to get them to sleep is ideal making sure that you have really good support around you so um as a mom you can't do it all by yourself because you moms actually have um if they have less sleep they're most likely to have postpartum depression so you need to have that support around you so so get your spouse to help you family members and stuff if you need help if they are super colicky and crying a lot um and making sure that you're also taking care of yourself because if you don't get some sleep or some rest or eat a meal drink water i loved coffee you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself because otherwise you won't be able to take care of your child properly right i guess that's a really key point what we call uh, often respite care for new moms and new dads also really important to give each other a break. Mm-hmm. And if you have family members, and that's not true for everybody, of no, course. No, it's if, true. If you have family members that can help out, that's bonus, of course. Even if you don't have family members, you can take things in shifts, I suppose, where either mom or dad takes the responsibility for part of the day so that you get a break and can recharge and, and get some rest because otherwise you're going to burn out. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, you know, you mentioned that, you know, carrying them in a position of comfort, uh, holding them, putting them in maybe, a, you know, like the equivalent of a baby Bjorn, that carrier mm-hmm. in position of comfort to get them to sleep. But is it okay to put them down awake and allow them to cry themselves to sleep? Yeah, crying is normal. I recommend for all families to put down their child awake because then they're actually learning and developing those skills to be able to fall asleep on their own and stay asleep on their own. Right. So starting off on the right foot um, by having like a good uh, solid routine teaches the babe to sleep well naturally and gradually over the the course of those first three months. Obviously, you're not going to throw them right into a strict training schedule when they're newborns, but giving them kind of the support and guidance that they need to be able to teach your baby to sleep well is kind of ideal at that time. And you can start that almost right off the hop. As soon as you bring your child home, it's okay to put babies down awake and allow them to self-soothe to a degree? To a degree it is. I mean, you are you also want to make sure that they're not crying for other reasons like hunger or they have a wet diaper or they're too cold or something. So you for need sure. to double check all of those things first. But a little bit of crying is okay. But newborn, I definitely wouldn't let them cry it out like a lot of families think so obviously you want to still be able to support them and have those um, connections with them and give them the comfort that they need to be able to sleep but you can guide them and um, support them through it i remember uh, when uh, our oldest was uh, brand new Um, i chuckle a bit when i think about that now but we were frankly ridiculous at our house because (laughs) we enforced a code of a cone of silence and my wife's parents would come over and her father would come in the front door and he would cough and I would just lay into him because <laughs> Megan had just gone to sleep. I would lay into him. Don't you know the baby just gone to right? sleep? And so, you know, I laugh about that now, but a lot of parents have this idea. And I, you know, once their kids are asleep that the house becomes whisper quiet, they won't run the vacuum cleaner. They won't play any music. What do you think about that? No, my mom, when she came over and would help me with my firstborn, she's like, run the vacuum, play noises, do something in order to actually like let them sleep through it and learn to sleep through that. Um, I'm a big fan of white noise. You want to have something consistent, a consistent sound, and it kind of will, it will block out all of the other outside noises and stuff, but also gives them kind of comfort in their own sleep space. Now, there's, there's different types of white noise, though, right? There's, there's kind mm-hmm. of, so, so what types of white noise? Is it like that kind of like the, the kind of homogenous, you know, one note sound that some older people and adults will use to get to sleep? Or do you suggest like music or what sort of thing? No, I don't suggest any like music or like bird noises or ocean noises that have the different um, levels of sounds, I guess. You want like the fan noise or just like strictly white noise playing constantly in the background and have it on all night or during the entire nap. You don't want it to be set on a timer or anything. Yeah. And also okay not to do that. It's also okay to, I mean, if your child's not having an issue, you're putting them down and teaching them that their environment is normal. I think, you know, from what I know, what people forget is that when your baby is in utero before they're born, they live in a noisy environment. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually quite unnatural for them to come out and then be put in a room and suddenly there's death, you know, dead silence. Yeah. So there's actually a real contrast. So normalizing background noises to a degree is really normal, but okay to use white noise if necessary as an aid to try to get these kids to stay asleep. Is that really what I hear you saying? Yeah, it definitely is. Cool. And then, you know, so, and then one of the other things we, we uh, often deal with, and we dealt with this too, 
is, and I, again, to use uh, <laughs> poor Megan, my, my oldest, if she hears this, she's going to cringe a little bit. But <laughs> when she, when she uh, uh, hit about five or six months of age, you know, she had had about a month where things were far better. And she would go to sleep at, I think, 9 p.m. and sleep until 6 a.m. And then the wheels came off and she started waking up at night again. I think the term you use in, in your business is sleep regression. So we certainly felt like she regressed. Is that normal? And what can you do about it? Yeah, very normal. So the dreaded sleep regressions, when in, actual, in actuality, they're progressions um, as they're learning and developing new skills. So a lot of the time it will happen between four and six months when they're learning to roll. Um, you're going to hit another regression around seven to 10 months when they're learning to crawl. And then again, between nine and 12 months when they're learning to walk and kind of jump around. And then with these new skills developing, it's obviously going to interrupt their sleep because they're wanting to practice them and do them as much as they can uh -huh. in their crib. Yeah. And so let them master their skill outside of the crib as much as possible. And then stay super consistent with the schedule and the bedtime routine and um, let them know that it's bedtime when it's bedtime when you're putting them in the crib. And it could take between two to six weeks of consistency before they're actually back onto their normal sleep patterns again. Yeah. So it doesn't mean, you know, to just emphasize your take on this. It's not regression. It's actually progression. Progression. It means it's a healthy development. They're learning new skills and ups and downs, so to speak, with regard to how, how much they sleep, when they sleep. That's totally normal part of their development. Yep, completely normal. Parents don't need to worry. No, no worry at all. It's actually a really good thing, but definitely make sure that they're mastering those skills outside of the crib and giving them as much time to do that as possible. Yeah, awesome. So just to back up for a second to the very early period, we talk a lot about the so-called, quote, back to sleep, unquote, routine. I just want to make sure that our listeners are clear with regard to this advice that they're given. How important is it for babies to be put to sleep on their back? Very important. It's one of the first things that I talk about um, when I'm working with families. It's I'm all about safe infant sleep. So the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends the ABCs of safe sleep. So A is for alone. They do recommend room sharing up until about six months of age, but also recommend a separate sleep space for that babe. Um, B is on their back. So always place your baby on their back for sleep and be sure the surface is flat. Avoid any sleep positioners such as wedges or risers. Um, and I wouldn't recommend any sleep in swings, bouncers or rockers once they get this age. You want a flat surface on their back. And then C for crib um, or bassinet. And you want that to be free of any pillows, blankets, stuffed animals or bumpers or anything. So really all you should have in that crib or bassinet is um, a safe fitted sheet and your baby. And so the reason for the A part, for the alone part, is to speak to the practice of co-sleeping, co -sleeping. which is a natural tendency on the part of many parents when their newborn is crying and for comfort, mm -hmm. mom's tired. It's really can feel so natural to fall into bed and just have your baby next to you. But because you're tired, you fall asleep. Yeah. And the risk of co-sleeping is you can roll over on top of your baby. Mm -hmm. And we've had some tragic stories around that. Uh, yeah. You know, so. I've seen it too many and, times. Yeah. And then and then the, the rationale for the back to sleep, it's because of what we used to call SIDS, SIDS. or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, now it's called, I think it's called SUDI, S-U-D-I, or Sudden Unexplained Death in Infants. Yeah. And it turns out that when we flip babies over onto their back, that the incidence of SIDS dropped fairly dramatically. Mm-hmm. 
Now that raises another issue though, and that is, you know, you and I see these babies, they come in at three or four months of age and because they're sleeping always on their back and their skull is still fairly soft, that they can become quite flat or misshapen on the back part of their head because of the back to sleep mm-hmm. um, practice. Do parents ever bring that up to you? Uh, they have a couple times and even as a new mom when I was going through this I thought about it and I often would just go in if you place them kind of facing the opposite direction and you can kind of adjust their head a little bit when they're sleeping to face left or to face right to make sure that it's not always in the exact same spot right um and it doesn't come up a ton but every once in a while I've had had the old family worry it is it is an important issue and it's something for parents to be aware of is to pay attention to the shape of their child's Mm -hmm. their baby's head so that if it does start to become a bit flatter or a bit flatter on one side than the other, that they can take some measures in that regard. Really the best advice in those cases is to see your pediatrician to figure out whether or not there's a role to be played for physiotherapy. In some more extreme cases, kids can have a, a helmet to straighten things out so that be for their skull fuses entirely. They can have the, the nice little round head uh, restored from the, uh, from the uh, flat position that they've obtained from the sleeping yeah practice so and with that to make sure don't just have them in swings during the day when they're awake make sure they're doing lots of tummy time and getting different exercises and stuff that way so they're actually more on their tummy during the day when they're awake and working on those muscles to build those strength up yeah 100 percent. so that's uh that's a few uh key points about uh the babies and so on but when kids get a bit older um, when they become toddlers and they become smaller children, what are some of the common issues there? Like, what, what are the most common things that p- parents will come to you, say, for a, a two-year-old or a three-year-old? Yeah, uh, short naps, difficulty falling and staying asleep, and then r- early morning wakings gets parents when their kids wake up before 6 a.m. Yeah, so for, so for the napping, uh, just help us out to hear a bit with regard to what's normal. Like, when... You know, babies inherently nap. That's just part of the parcel when they come home. They spend a lot of time during the day sleeping. They get older, that becomes less. At what point, you know, for a for a two-year-old, for example, how much napping is normal? Uh, for a two-year-old, you're usually down to one nap a day. Some t- they usually drop their naps between two and a half to five years of age. Um, and on that one nap, they can nap anywhere between an hour to like two and a half to three hours. You just want to make sure it's not too long so that it's not kind of cutting into their nighttime sleep. Yeah, and so if they're if they're uh, napping, say for two or three hours, but you're having trouble getting them to sleep at night, is one of the strategies to shorten the nap. Yeah, definitely cap that nap. So you deliberately wake them up. Yeah, so they might be a little bit cranky for that first half yeah. an hour after waking them up, but you want to wake them up and then put them to bed at a normal time, and they should fall asleep at a normal time. And I know there must be a ton of variation, obviously, because not every two-year-old needs, say, two naps or even one nap. And the length of nap varies quite a bit. So you really have to gauge your child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are. So you're also going to judge it on like when they wake up in the morning, how cranky they are, what what their bedtime is. Some people could put their kids to bed at nine. I like to put my kids to bed at 630 or seven. So it just it kind of depends on each family and what your schedule is like. So it feeds into what parental routine is as well. So if you're a family or a couple that gets up at five o'clock in the morning, you can adjust your kids sleep schedule to jive with that you can it's a little bit harder when it's when you're up at 5 a.m because their normal kind of sleep clock to wake up is between six and seven but um like i wake my son up at quarter to six every day when i go to work if i need to take him to daycare so he just goes to bed a little bit earlier those nights yeah so if you have so let's say your morning routine starts at 6 30 
but your your three-year-old is for example is waking up at five every morning and you're you know it's become like your alarm clock except it's coming an hour and a half early they toddle into your room Mm -hmm. and it's five o'clock and (laughs) you don't really need to get up to start your day until 6 30 what can you do about that yeah so some kids are naturally early birds but most are not um you want to encourage a later early morning or later morning waking you might be surprised here it all starts with bedtime so for infants ensure that the bedtime feed is before bath or at the beginning of the routine and that babe remains awake for that feed and that they're going down awake um, on their own so that also means no soother unfortunately so you want to ensure that they're not overtired a lot of the time when they're overtired they're actually going to wake up earlier in the morning or else they're going to wake up more times overnight i know it seems counterintuitive but with kids that's often what happens um, so if you do think that they're overtired that they're having an early morning you're going to move that bedtime up a little bit you want to make sure that the room is pitch black um, i do recommend having a white noise machine on to drown out those early morning noises like a parent getting up and getting ready for work or the birds chirping a garbage truck driving by um, and make sure that nap like that your naps aren't like the first nap sorry isn't too close to when they wake up in the morning because that right. can also make a difference and again it can take about four to six weeks for their kind of internal clock to change. So the biggest thing is consistency. Make sure that you're kind of changing the routine around a little bit. And if they do get up early in the morning, take them right back to their bed. Tell them it's not time. It's not time to get up yet. Yeah, for sure. What's uh, what's the role of things like pacifiers? Uh, I'm not a big fan of pacifiers with sleep training. Um, they end up becoming a sleep prop. I know some families that will throw like six or seven into a crib so that the kid when they're a little bit older can grab it and put it in themselves but it just is you're not actually teaching them how to self-soothe and fall asleep on their own if they do have a pacifier oh and one of the big challenges with pacifiers once you've gone down that road many parents use them i don't mean to disparage them necessarily we used a pacifier with one of our kids too but our what we experienced with her the challenge was how to Um, have her stop using the pacifier ultimately which turned into a a long and a drawn out exercise yeah Yeah. with the bedtime routine let's say your child is just one of those kids that has a a really hard time falling asleep what are some strategies parents can use around that the biggest thing for me um is a bedtime routine you it's key kids thrive off a routine So you're going to start that right from when they're newborn and set them up for success. And it's obviously going to change the older that they get. But once you um, get into a good routine, it's actually a comfort for your child to know that that's what's happening. And then it prepares them for bedtime. So they they know what's happening and they can't really fight it as much. Um, You want it to be predictable and consistent. So they'll rely on the cues that you're giving during that routine to prepare themselves for sleep. And um, the biggest thing when they're younger, you want to make sure that they're not falling asleep during the routine. Because right. um, then once you wake them up to put them in their crib, they're going to have more of a difficult time actually falling asleep again. I know once I get woken up in the middle of, or woken up in the middle of the night, yeah. I have a difficult time falling asleep again. Yeah, which which prompts uh, which brings to mind uh, a related question, I guess, which is around. Um, using screens in proximity to bedtime because some families will use they'll watch a little movie together or they'll they'll lay in bed with their iPhone or its equivalent and watch a little 
um, Blue's Clues or something like that, and their child will fall asleep while they're watching a screen. And outside of that, like how, how close to bedtime is it okay for kids to be, you know, watching a show on whatever device they have? When should they, when should we shut off the screens? Is it okay to use screens to help bring, put our kids to sleep? So screen time is scientifically proven to actually delay the onset of sleep. Um, it exposes the retina to blue light and it delays the onset of melatonin production. So this can cause both children and adults to struggle falling asleep and staying asleep. So you want to avoid any sort of electronics for at least an hour before bedtime. And instead, I would encourage um, your child to have more quiet play activities. So they can do puzzles, coloring, reading books, crafting. So, so, the, so the, um, the exposure to the lights on the screens delays the production of melatonin, which mm-hmm. delays the onset of sleep. Correct. That's the way it works? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I think that's really a key point because many of us, like ourselves included, we have such a tendency because there are so many wonderful things that you can use your phones, your mini computers for. You can watch whatever you want. You can play whatever you want. And it really does engage their attention. But better, I think, from what you're telling me to do the old fashioned, read a bedtime story, have a bedtime routine that just leaves screens out of the picture entirely. Yeah, I agree. You can, if they're also having troubles falling asleep, you can kind of do some yoga with them um, or some light meditation, something to kind of help them. If you are using a screen to guide you through the meditation, you want to make sure that it's actually on like dark mode and kind of away from the child so they can't see it as much. For sure. But, some kids just have more issues falling asleep and they need a little bit more um, support to help them kind of bring things down and calm them down a little bit more. Um, there is Good Night Yoga is a pose by pose story and it's a great book to help calm down the body and mind Good through night. yoga. Good Night Yoga. Good Night Yoga, pose by pose story. Yeah, cool. I hadn't heard that <laughs> one before. And then also, sorry, I'm going to tell you a meditation. Um, Billy and Zach, the cat bedtime meditations. Right. So you can find it on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and it's a great way to actually get them to kind of relax the brain and let them think think about nothing else. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Now, now, when Jesse, my son, my youngest, when he was, uh, I don't remember exactly, I think he was four or five, he started having periods where he'd get out of bed and he would just be hysterical, frightened. Like he was seeing things mm-hmm. and out of control, hysterical. We had a, we, you know, we'd have a hard time settling him down and we put him back in bed the next morning. He had no recollection. And that's, that's something that, you know, we talked about uh, his issues with our pediatrician at the time. And clearly um, they were what we call night terrors. Mm-hmm. How often do you see that? What do you recommend the parents do for that? I haven't actually seen it a ton, but night uh, terrors typically begin around the age of three and they are a form of a parasomnia. So like sleepwalking or sleep talking. Right. And it's defined as a disorder characterized by abnormal or unusual behavior of the nervous system. So they can be short or they can last up to 90 minutes. And they actually, night terrors will occur within the first few hours of bedtime. Um, and yeah, like you said, they're not aware that they're having one. They don't remember them um, in the morning when they wake up. And um, children who often get night terrors are usually overtired or overstimulated before oh. bedtime. So either move up bedtime a little bit or try some meditation or deep breathing to be able to kind of get them to calm down a little bit before bed. And um, if for some reason it is lasting a long time, people have said that you can try and take them to the bathroom to try and get out of that night terror and then take them back to bed. But don't try to wake them up. Don't try to wake them up, no, because then that would be more stressful 
for everybody involved and kind of scare them more than what's actually happening for you yeah. and, and less likely to be able to go back to sleep anyway. correct yeah so so comfort them maybe take them to the bathroom as you say yeah. get them back into bed and then maybe adjust the sleep routine or timing of going to bed mm-hmm. in the first place yeah yeah okay and and sleepwalking i suppose same kind of thing is, is sleepwalking also related to disruption around bedtime yeah i would say i haven't actually dealt with anybody with sleepwalking it's not super common when they're younger more than night terrors but again it is kind of that parasomnia so making sure that they're not overstimulated or overtired before bedtime sure and it will usually happen within the first couple of hours when they first go down to sleep yeah i think it runs in families a little bit i know when i was growing up i grew up in a large family i have 11 siblings believe it or not (laughs) and uh, several of us slept What's the word? Sleepwalk? Yeah. Sleepwalk? <laughs> I have no idea. They, we, we, we tried to walk in our sleep when we were growing up, and it was just one of those things that, uh, and several of us did it. I remember one of my brothers getting up in the middle of the night, putting his boots on, his hat on, his jacket on. We grew up on a farm, and he was heading out to the barn to go to, you know, herd up, herd up <laughs> the cows, I guess. Uh, so pretty common. I think just important for families to know that these sorts of things are relatively normal parts of pediatric development yeah um, what we all want of course is for them to be safe and it, so we just want our kids to be safe and make sure that they're not going to injure themselves and that sort of thing that's true so. my sister speaking of safe she used to sleep walk and she had to make a salad every night for dinner and so my dad found her one night in the kitchen cutting up the vegetables <laughs> making a salad so just Un- unaware she unaware that it. she was doing it so just yeah. make sure that you have everything locked away safely so that nobody can harm yeah. themselves while they're sleeping yeah good point One of the things, Kaida, that uh, parents will ask about is when should a uh, older baby or infant or toddler, when is the key transition time or when is it proper for a child to go from sleeping in a crib to sleeping in a bed, like a toddler bed? Yeah, so most children aren't actually developmentally ready to move to a toddler bed until they're closer to the age of three. They truly don't know what to do with all of that freedom once they're moved out of the four walls of a crib. So the only time that we consider moving them out beforehand is if they're climbing out of the crib and it's become dangerous for them to remain in the crib. Yeah. So it's important to then move them into a toddler bed or a larger bed with rails. Um, But when you do make the transition, you want to make it exciting for them, explain that it's a big deal, help them pick out, let them help you pick out the sheets and blankets so they're a part of this big decision. But be sure to have a safe room when you're doing this transition. So that means having all of the furniture bolted to the walls. Um, Don't put a bed underneath or near a window and making sure that anything that your child can actually get into in their room is safe. Just they still are going to wander around possibly. So you want to make sure that everything in that room is safe for them to do so. So around the age of three, but mm-hmm. some variation there, of course. I remember quite clearly, actually, a child I took care of in the emergency room was two and a half who broke his forearm climbing out of his crib. Yeah. So, you know, that doesn't happen very often, of course. But but clearly, just to emphasize that point, that safety is key. Safety is key. Including the, the child who's repeatedly climbing out of their crib. It's just time to be done with the crib and, and move to the toddler bed or to a, a bed of some sort. Yeah. If, they, yeah. if they are climbing, you can try and move um, the mattress. It might not even be on the bottom um, spring, but actually on the floor so that it's a larger distance for them to climb. Yeah, yeah. And if they still are in a sleep sack, you can actually turn that sleep sack backwards and then it makes it harder for them to be able huh. to kind of move their leg around to get out of the crib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are good good points as well. So, yeah, awesome. Those are great tips. And then finally, um, I just wanted to ask uh, if you have any tips or 
advice around travel. So when you go on family vacation and you know you have all of these routines and you you know things are pretty stable at home as far as sleeping and so on, but then you take your family on a road trip or you head off to Disneyland or whatever, and things are completely topsy turvy because your days start early and they end late, and that can cause problems with sleep obviously Mm -hmm. what sorts of things should families be thinking of when they take their small children on vacation so that the whole apple cart of sleep doesn't get overturned you have all kinds of trouble when they come back right so um try to respect their sleep needs and don't over schedule too many things i know say at disneyland you want to be there all day but try and plan for a little bit of downtime in the afternoon where they can actually have a nap that isn't on the go Um, An occasional car nap or later bedtime is okay, but if you're doing that consecutively for days in a row where they're napping on the go and they have later bedtimes, it's definitely going to wreak havoc on their sleep. Um, So just make sure that you're, wherever you're at, kind of be consistent, stay in that routine that you have, take your comfort measures that you have at home, like white noise machine or their blanket or stuffy or something, and try and make it as their routine as normal as possible in a different sleep space. And if it does get out of whack a little bit, just make sure that as soon as you get home that you're super consistent and you go back to a regular routine. And if they were a good sleeper before holidays, it should only take them a day or two to get back into that good sleeping routine once you get back home. Yeah, good. You know, uh, one of the things that we often talk to parents about, those of us who are in pediatric healthcare. We talk about the importance of modeling good habits in every jurisdiction of Mm -hmm. living to our children, eating and sleeping, of course, as well. And uh, that can be a bit of a challenge when you're a shift worker, for example, like you are Mm -hmm. with your pediatric emergency nursing job. And as with my own work as an emergency physician, we have hours that are really odd. So if you're if you're a parent, you know, as much as you um, reasonably subscribe to the good advice that you should pattern for your children what they should do how do you pattern that when you yourself have a very unsettled sleep um, program just by necessity i definitely rely on my partner a lot to keep it as consistent as possible when i'm not there you know my my kids laugh at me because i'm getting longer in the tooth and i i I trot out these uh these uh, old sayings you know and the one i remember from way back in the day when i was young was um uh, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. <laughs> you know, which is, of course is a hoary old chestnut, but there, right. there's some, there is some truth to that. In general, if you can go to bed at a at a reasonable hour, and uh, you know, using all of the things that we've talked about today, and then awake refreshed relatively early on in the day is the best way to um, to be productive and teaching our children those sorts of basic principles early on. I think is a good thing. Oh yeah. So um, now um, when parents ask you for go-to resources, um, obviously you have your sleep uh, coaching business, which of course is a, an awesome resource. And there are other businesses like yours that can help families. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, what sorts of, uh, what, where should uh, parents be pointed to? What are things that they can use? Is there a website or uh, online resources or books or training aids that they can use? Can you just name a few if you yeah. Um, I did kind of work for a company in the U.S. for a little while, and Dr. Craig Canapari um, was a physician that we worked with, his pe- pediatric physician, and he has a great blog post that I will often refer families to or go back and read myself for some resources. Um, and then just a couple of books for kids who might have fears around bedtime. 
So Little Mouse's Big Book of Fears, When I Feel Scared or Scaredy Squirrel at Night. For those older kids who kind of are starting to get a little bit more afraid of things, those are great books for everybody to kind of look at. Where can people find you, Kaida? Can, where is your, you have a website? RestfulNightSleep.com, is Re- it? Yep. And then also um, on Instagram and Facebook. So yeah, Facebook, Restful Night Sleep. And then on Instagram, it's Kaida underscore Restful Night Sleep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kaida. Thank you for coming in and being on our show today. Uh, Very useful information. Uh, Thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So just back to that mom at the beginning of the show. Her little girl was three weeks old. It was her first child. And of course, when I saw her, that baby was sleeping peacefully in her infant carrier, of course, uh, in the emergency room. I ran through her history with uh, her mom. There was no red flags at all. Uh, she was feeding well, growing, peeing, and pooping. The nurse had recorded her vital signs already. Everything was normal. And so I lifted that babe out of her carrier, unwrapped her, uh, undressed her, and her exam was entirely normal. And so I spent time reassuring mom and educating her around normal sleep in babies, uh, just uh, per the principles that Kyla and I just discussed Uh, in the podcast, and I sent them on their way with uh, reassurance. So that's a wrap for today. Uh, Big thanks again to Kaida. I encourage you to check out the resources that she mentioned and uh, go to her website uh, for some other awesome information. Uh, Before I leave you today, a brief message uh, for listeners I mentioned at the end of our last show uh, last month that our intent is to do daily short snapper episodes uh, called The Daily Dose. And that's still on the drawing board, but I've hit a bit of turbulence of my own and I'm faced with a bit of a forced hiatus. I've got to have surgery uh, this week uh, on Friday to be precise. Uh, fairly big deal, a surgery called a craniotomy to deal with a tumor that I've been living with for 17 years. Uh, so if all goes well, and uh, obviously I hope that it does, I'll be back in this space with more episodes targeted toward helping parents raise happy and healthy kids, and we'll get our initiative to do the so-called daily dose uh, episodes uh, off and running as well. So thank you, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. A summary of today's episode can be found at riskofkids.substack.com. We'd love some feedback. Send us your comments or ideas you'd like to see us explore on future shows. You can reach us at feedback at riskofkids.com. That's feedback at riskofkids.com. Please support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better, points us to topics that are relevant to you, and helps us reach new listeners. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Until then, remember, kids are like boomerangs. They're wonderful to hold, but they're meant to fly. The views expressed on this show should not be taken or construed as personal medical advice. For individual medical opinions, please consult your own doctor. Cloudy with the Risk of Children is a Studio D podcast production.